You're listening to WERA 96.7 in Arlington. This is Prime Focus, and we are a radio program sponsored by the IHW Foundation. Music on today's episode is sponsored by the Alliance of Women Film Composers. To learn more about Prime Focus, IHW Foundation, and the Alliance of Women Film Composers, please visit our website at www.inherwords.org. This is Prime Focus, a radio talk show about women in the field of cinema and other media platforms. I am your host, Sonia Dunn. Welcome to today's show. Prime Focus will set its focal point on two individuals in two different fields of media who are scholars that are shaping the minds of current and future critical thinkers and creators in the film industry. Mary Dalton and Nadina Sikand. We'll begin two new segments on the show. The first will be Game Changer of the Week and also a commentary by me on hot topics that are going on domestically and internationally in the field of entertainment, film, and media. Plus, I will let you know what movies are coming out, which ones should you be on the lookout for, and the latest industry news in the field of film, media, and entertainment. You're listening to Lauren Beister's film score from the Student Academy Award-winning film, Above the Sea. Lauren was born and raised in New York City to a family of artists and graduated with a Bachelor's of Music in Film, scoring from Berklee College of Music. Lauren Buster is an ASCAP 2014 composer to watch. Her influence in different styles have allowed her to compose for a variety of media, including film, television, dance, as well as concert work. Her music can be heard on various primetime network TV programs, including ABC's World News with Diane Sawyer, NBC's Deadline, ABC's 2020. She has composed original scores for many films, including Cherries and Season, And recently, she completed work on a score for Standing in the Stars, the Peter Mayhew story, a feature-length documentary slated for release later this year. We'll be right back with our first guest, Mary Dalton, right after this song. first guest today on Prime Focus is Mary Dalton. She is a professor of communications, film studies, and women and gender studies at Wake Forest University. She has a PhD in cultural studies and an MA in broadcast cinema from the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. And her undergraduate degree is from Wake Forest University. Mary Dalton's film, Martha in Lattimore, premiered at the Real to Real Film Festival where it won Best Documentary and was an official selection of several docs. 
She's the author of The Hollywood Curriculum, Teachers in Movies. And in 2008, she co-authored the book Teacher TV, Six Years of Teaching on Television. Mary Dalton, thank you so much for being on our show today. What fields of studies do you teach? When I started my career, I started as an adjunct, and I had worked in television news, so I taught you know, what, what was then called radio TV speech and writing for radio TV, and I taught some television production and some film production, and I haven't taught production in years. I teach studies now, so I teach media theory and criticism, courses I've developed based on my research, like culture and the sitcom, gender and Hitchcock, all kinds of uh, other stuff. I also teach in women's gender and sexuality studies. Your childhood, did you see yourself in media? Well, growing up in the South, I think I always was tied into the storytelling tradition. So I think that was a big piece of it. I always thought about writing. And honestly, I make documentaries now, and in addition to doing scholarly work and writing. And I think about all of it as writing. So I. I approach it from the story side. So what was your first media job? Well, my first media job was actually in college where I was an announcer at the NPR affiliate station, WFDD, which was the first NPR affiliate in North Carolina. And it's funny because you say going back, I, I still do media commentaries for WFDD. It hasn't been a continuous association since then, but, and I have a, a media blog that's posted there. But as far as unpaid work, I did, uh, I was an explorer at Channel 8, which uh, was then an ABC affiliate, now in the big Fox changeover, it's a Fox affiliate. But I've always had an interest in media, and I'd have to say it starts from eighth grade when we had a TV production class, which was kind of unusual for, now they call it middle school, back then it was junior high, and I got involved with that and got, got hooked. Do you think there is an equal balance between men and women in academia? It's growing. I mean, you know, for years I was the only uh, woman in my area. Okay. And, and after, uh, I ended up teaching at Wake Forest as an adjunct, as I mentioned, because my mentor, when I was an undergrad, brought me back in pretty early. I never thought about teaching. I never considered that as a career path. I just kind of fell into it. <clears throat> but aside from him, you know, I was the only person in the media area. And then after, after I started, <clears throat> excuse me. You can take <clears throat> yeah, I'm thinking that might be good. I didn't phrase all that very well anyway. I, when you ask me if I think, are you asking me for personal reflections or are you just wanting more of a, because you ask a question, and I started answering it with my own personal story. Is that the, is that the yes. approach you want? Okay. So, <clears throat> let me back up. Um, you know, I've been a member of UFVA for nearly 20 years. And one of the things we've talked about a whole lot is that there are not as many women in the field, particularly teaching production classes. Now, I've made a shift away from teaching production, but I still make documentaries. And it's pretty obvious to me that, that it's still male-dominated. Why are women not in academia? Well, this is not specific to media. If you look at the studies and you look at tenure 
tenure track lines and women who ascend through the ranks in the academy, uh, women are far less likely to reach the highest ranks in the field. And it's even, it's compounded if they are mothers, you know, if you have kids. I, I am <laughs> happily a full professor and a mom, but I, I look around and that's why I've been kind of astonished when I look at the figures and I see what happens. I think people get derailed by life. You know, it's complicated to juggle so many different things. And I mean, there's literature out there and I'm not an expert in that literature, but when you, you know, you look at the types of things women take on and the, the, the sort of way they approach their careers and the obligations they have, it, it's, a, it's a harder path. What is your take on the disparity of women in key positions in feature films? Well, obviously, I mean, as a as also a critic, since I do work with the WFDD, I, I'm appalled by the lack of stories that represent my interest and in, in my uh, my perspectives. And I think that I think that it, it's fueled too by other critics. If you look at the dominant voices evaluating films out in the marketplace, as well as the dominant voices making films, you get this, it's, it's like an echo chamber. And it's very difficult to find a receptive space for non-traditional narrative structures that are less linear and masculinist. And it's, it's, a, it's a very, it's very difficult. It's, it, and it would be disheartening, except that I am an eternal optimist. Are there any solutions out there to keep women comfortable behind the scenes? Well, there are studies, too, that show that there have been high barriers for women. And some of those barriers, in my experience teaching, have been self-imposed. Women are less comfortable jumping in and uh, taking roles and productions that, where they, they deal with uh, the equipment than, than men. And some of it has been just the industry. And what about the technical side? I think to, to, to increase the presence of women behind the camera, uh, it is important to have women teachers. I, I think that is a key. When women come into the classroom and it is a woman who is teaching a particular craft, then, then that's, that's going to be a natural. What was your turning point professionally? So I started out after after I graduated from college, I did get a master's right away because the economy was terrible. Doesn't that sound familiar? And I was young. I had graduated from college when I was 20, and I was kind of like, ah, what am I going to do next? So I took an easy route. Uh, it seemed like an easy route, and it was, it was a comfort. I, I took a comfortable route. So I got a master's, and then I worked in television news, and I realized um, that I was a, a 10 o'clock news anchor at an independent station and I realized that I found the format very confining and I didn't really think that my news director, who shall remain nameless, was very ethical. <laughs> and I also faced the double standard. I had come out of college this idealist, you know, I thought, oh, the world is equal. I believed in the meritocracy. I thought, I'm smart. I've gotten, I don't have any barriers because I'm a woman. You know, this was in the early 80s. I'm like, oh, the women's movement, that's ancient history. And then I get in the newsroom and I am assigned to cover things like um, somebody who won a floral arranging competition or, and, and, and the men in the newsroom are covering 
drug busts and prostitution rates and they're making more money than i am and boy my eyes just flew wide open and i saw that i had uh, i had had a, a a pretty sheltered view of what the world was really like how did you get into documentary filmmaking so I stayed in television news for a while until I realized that, you know, if I, if I keep doing this forever, I'll go to a bigger market and I'll make more money, but I'm going to be doing exactly the same thing. And I didn't want, that wasn't particularly what I wanted to do in terms of storytelling. But I did a, a brief stint in television advertising sales because everybody told me, you're so perky, you'd be great in sales. And I absolutely hated it. It didn't feel creative at all. And I've never understood if I was a failure because I hated it or if I hated it because I was a failure. But either way, I did that for about six months. And then I started doing freelance work and teaching adjunct courses. And so for some years, until I went into my doctoral program, I was a writer-producer for a number of educational projects and you know, uh, corporate videos, things like that. And then um, when I was in my doctoral program, I didn't, I didn't do production for a while because I was, I, was, I was a little busy. I was working full-time. I had a baby and <laughs> I was in my doctoral program. So after that though, um, I had, in the back of my mind, I had kind of thought, you know, I, I, I have some stories I'd like to tell and I do have this background and circumstances came together. Uh, uh, it was about 2000, you know, when they came together. So I was almost 40 before I made my first documentary and uh, haven't really looked back since. It's What is next for you? Actually, my goals are kind of interesting because I know what I'm doing for the next three years or so. I am a planner and that doesn't mean that if something great pops up that I won't follow that because I will. But um, as I said, I'm starting a new documentary that will take six years to shoot. Um, I don't really want to talk quite yet about what it is, but it's uh, a story that I think is really interesting and very promising. And um, and I have a couple of book projects. Uh, the, a new edition of the sitcom reader, which I co-edited with Laura Linder, will be out on June 1st, 2016. A new edition of my book, The Hollywood Curriculum, Teachers in the Movies, is supposed to come out in 2016. And I'm doing another anthology called Screen Lessons, What I've Learned from Teachers in Television and the Movies. And that in particular is an important project for me because it gives me an opportunity to nurture young scholars um, and encourage them, since it's an anthology project, I got a lot of submissions, and I've chosen people at all different stages in their careers. So I have graduate students, I have some teachers who are uh, like public school teachers who are contributing, and senior scholars. So um, the one other thing I would add, I did a really exciting course this past semester uh, where I taught a seminar on critical media studies in The Wire and I structured it, so I was trying to figure out a way to kind of bring production into an academic course. So we produced an edited volume of the student essays that I, you know, that I edited and I had two graduate students that I brought in as co-editors. So you can look on Amazon and get your copy of Critical Media Studies Student Essays on the Wire. And so students learned in that process about you know, how you put together a book, about copyright, about how to make an index. I mean, they learned all kinds of things that 
I think they'd taken for granted before. And a student in the class designed the cover, which is stunning. So it's a different way to think about production, produ producing a different type of text. Thank you, Mary Dalton, for sharing your time with us on Prime Focus today. Next up, entertainment news. In an article from entertainment media outlet The Variety, YouTube will fund women video creators and team up with the United Nations and Gina Davis's nonprofit organization, the Gina Davis Institute on Gender in Media. Recently, Google financed more than 50 videos spotlighting women perspectives and shot videos at YouTube Space Studio around the world. YouTube also struck a year-long partnership with the United Nations, which has enlisted seven top YouTube creators as change ambassadors to create videos promoting tolerance and gender equality. You can find the rest of this article posted on our website at www.inherwords.org or our social platforms on Pinterest and Twitter. In an article from entertainment media outlet, The Variety, YouTube will fund women video creators and team up with the United Nations and Gina Davis's nonprofit organization, the Gina Davis Institute on Gender and Media. Recently, Google financed more than 50 videos spotlighting women perspectives and shot these videos at YouTube Space Studio around the world. YouTube also struck a year-long partnership with the United Nations, which has enlisted seven top YouTube female creators as change ambassadors to create videos promoting tolerance and gender equality. You can find the rest of this article posted on our website at www.inherwords.org and our social platforms on Pinterest and Twitter. Veep's Emmy Award-winning star and executive producer Julia Lewis-Dreifer is taking on another project for HBO, the miniseries Soldier Girls. The miniseries, now in development, is based on the praised 2014 non-fiction book Soldier Girls, The Battles of Three Women at Home and at War by Helen Thorpe. Based on interviews and research, it tells the real-life stories of three women who enlisted in the National Guard and served their country during the Afghanistan and Iraq wars, which, le which, leads, which leads them to form lifelong friendships. Which leads them to form lifelong friendships. Blacklist scribe and former soldier Nicole Regal will write the adaptation in her TV debut and will also serve as co-producer. Louise Dreyfus will executive produce alongside her producing partner and husband, Brad Hall. Veep's Emmy winning star and executive producer, Julia Louise Dreyfus is taking on another project for HBO, the miniseries, Soldier Girls. The miniseries, now in development, is based on the praised 2014 nonfiction book, Soldier Girls, The Battles of Three Women at Home and at War, by Helen Thorpe. Based on interviews and research, it tells the real-life story 
of three women who enlist in the National Guard and serve their country during the Afghanistan and Iraq wars, which leads them to form lifelong friendships. Blacklist scribe and former soldier Nicole Regal will write the adaptation in her TV debut and will serve as co-producer. Louise Dreyfus will executive produce alongside her producing partner and husband, Brad Hall. Also in the news, we have new films being released this month by female writers. Also in the news, new films being released this month by female writers. The first one is Hello, My Name is Doris. Co-written by Laura Teruso, it will be released March 11th. In Hello, My Name is Doris, Sally Field stars as Doris, an eccentric middle-aged quarter from Staten Island, who makes friends and falls in love with her new young colleague, John, played by Max Greenfield. They become friends, and he in introduces her to the hipsters crowd in Williamsburg, where her original style immediately makes her popular. Hello, my name is Doris tackles ageism, an issue Sally Fields has brought up in the press at the South by Southwest premiere last year. Sally Fields says, quote, they don't write roles for women, and they certainly don't write roles for women of age and women of color, unquote. Sally Fields has not had a leading role in 20 years, and we're glad that she's back. The Bronze, co-written by Michelle Roach, will be released in theaters on March 18th. Michelle Roach stars in the R-rated comedy as Hope Gregor, a former Olympic gymnast with only one bronze medal to her name. When a promising new athlete, Kaylee Lou Richardson, appears on the scene, Hope's celebrity status in her small town is threatened. Then, when asked to train the new girl, jealousy subsequently ensues. Roach once stated, quote, There are a lot of male anti-heroes, and that's not always the case for women. People still aren't okay with women talking this way, unquote. This is certainly something that the comedian sets out to change in this funny, foul-mouthed film, The Bronze. Our second guest today on Prime Focus is Nadina Sikand. Nadina is an associate professor of interdisciplinary film and media studies at Lafayette College, a liberal arts college in Pennsylvania. Sakan's documentary and experimental films have screened and won awards at over 100 domestic and international film festivals. Her work has aired on PBS and has been awarded grants from the Jerome Foundation, the Center of Asian American Media, and she is a two-time awardee of the New York State Council on the Arts. Her films include The Bagdering Rap in 1995, Don't Fence Me In in 1998, 
Amazonian in 2001, In Whose Name in 2004, Soma Girls in 2009, and Cranes of Hope in 2011. She also produced the documentary Masodita, Witness, Advocate, and Writer in 2001. In television, she has worked as a producer and director on projects for HBO, Oxygen, and the History Channel. She has served on the board of directors for Women Make Movies, a nonprofit feminist media distribution organization from 1997 to 2006. Nadini Sakad, thank you so much for being on our show. Where did you go to school for your undergraduate and graduate degree? I did my undergraduate in Delhi, in India, New Delhi. Um, I went to Delhi University. I got a d degree in philosophy. And I did my first graduate degree was a master's at uh, Northern Illinois University in DeKalb, Illinois. And then I moved to New York. And then many years later, I went back for grad school to get my PhD in anthropology. Uh, my master's was in film. And that was at the Graduate Center um, CUNY in New York. What field of studies do you teach at this time? Well, I teach at a liberal arts college. Um, I also, and I teach in a film and media studies, interdisciplinary film and media studies program. I'm also a producer director and I shoot some of my own work. Um, and so I'm basically a documentary and experimental filmmaker. So how did your childhood experience play a part in your chosen profession? Well, I think one, I've, I've thought about this um, more recently, and I think when I was a child, I used to take, when I was pre, when I couldn't really read that well, I was about two or three, probably three or four, I used to love cutting out pictures for magazines, and I would create my own stories. Um, I was also challenged by the fact, I loved language, um, but I, my, I had a, have a mother who was a professor of English, and an older sister, and they are really beautiful writers, so I was completely intimidated by that. Um, so I still have my love of language, but I think I felt like I needed another language and it, I sort of turned to images rather than words first, I think. Um, Why did you choose media as your chosen profession? Um, I think my love of telling stories really started when I sort of, I first sort of gravitated to sort of words and images, but I think um, there's, a, there's something that images can sometimes capture that sometimes words can't fully capture, and I think is something that's really powerful about um, giving voice to those. And it's almost, you can just see something and see so much. And I think different people see different things in that same image, and I think that's really powerful. It's what, what you put, choose to put a frame around, you know? Do you believe these images would have a different interpretation between different cultures of people? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think, you know, I think an image I think people bring to it, like with any art form, people bring to it their own experience and where they, you know, where they, what they see. So, you know, um, somebody holding up a hand like this, right? Somebody may see something, somebody may see something else, right? So I think it depends on, on, on the language of that gesture in that particular instance. Absolutely. And I think that's what's beautiful because people can interpret it. But there's also something that is, I do believe in a very idealistic way, somewhat something universal. You know, the idea of, you know, stories or empathy or sharing a human experience. And I think that images can do that in a way. Um, not to say that words can't, but I think it's a different language. Coming to the U.S., did your perception of what you thought you wanted to do in media change? 
So when I applied for graduate school, I knew I wanted to work in journalism or something akin to that. I knew I had an undergraduate degree in philosophy. I had no idea, you know, what I was going to do after that. I knew I wanted to go to graduate school. I knew I wanted to do something. Um, I coming to the states, I realized I wouldn't be a journalist. Um, I hated being in front of the camera. Um, I liked being behind the camera, like calling the shots, I like telling people what to do. I also realized as a woman of color, I would never make it as a journalist, and I also had an accent, and you know, so there were all these issues. But I wasn't interested in being told what to speak, other people's words. I wanted to write the words, so I think it was very easy for me. It's a very easy choice, um, and I, there's something about film, or even dance for that matter, that I love. It's sort of I have an idea that, of something that I want to make, and then I can decide, oh, should I make a dance piece about this, right, or should I make it a film? And that's sort of the I love that conceptualization. So it's sort of been a journey in that way, and it changes depending on the subject matter. You know, when I, on, from, from my idea of being a journalist when I was growing up in India, I was writing, I was writing for newspapers, and it would get published. I was like, well, this is easy, you know. So then I thought I, thought I would study broadcast journalism because I've learned how to use a camera. But I realized a lot of the reporters here, I mean, this was, you know, 20, 25 years ago, that they would be on, news anchors, right? They would be, somebody else would be writing the words and they just had to look good, you know? And for me, I was, that was not, was my interest. I wanted to write, I wanted to shoot, I wanted to create, carve the story, craft the story. So I think that was, yeah, absolutely a big part of it. I, as I said, I had an accent. I came to the Midwest, you know? I, I mean, my, I was obviously fluent in English, but, you know, I think um, I was different, you know? And they didn't have people who looked like me. You know, not that I wanted it, but it, they just didn't. And it was also, but more compellingly, I think for me was I didn't want to be sitting in a studio. I wanted to be out making stuff. Name some people whose work you admire or inspires you as a filmmaker. But what I really like is sort of, you know, I think in general, I think I can maybe speak to qualities that I admire in somebody's work. And I think it's people who do something that hasn't been done in a way, also puts a different, you know. A light on things that we don't think about. We change the way we think about a particular issue or you take two ideas and you juxtapose them and you create a third idea. That to me is sort of really meaningful whether it's through two pieces of film or two ideas you know so I think that's what really speaks to me mm -hmm. um, and it changes depending on where I'm at you know. Um, uh, recently I'm reading this book by Liz Lerman who's a choreographer and she's this I mean really incredible choreographer and talks about working as a dancer in the community and working as a dancer on a concert stage. And she says in our society we have this hierarchy, right? Community arts is here and concert art is here. And her book is called Hiking the Horizontal. And she talks about taking this hierarchy and doing this and making it a horizontal. Right? So it's a beautiful way to sort of think about the work that we do because it's, um, it's not codified in that way and I think it's much more complicated. And I think sometimes being women, it's complicated even more. You know, there's things like not, you know, the parenting and motherhood and juggling those things. And not to say that, you know, men are not parents as well, very much so. But I think those sorts of, you really have to make some choices, you know. Like when you're pregnant and nine months and you're trying to shoot a film and carrying two boxes of film gear, it's a challenge. Why did you choose to go into academia? Hmm. Um... You know, after I got my master's and I moved to New York to be a documentary filmmaker and and I was working in television, making, you know, very little money. I was work making, you know, working very long hours. I was trying to get my green card, so I was um, working for Ethnic Media and they were sponsoring me for my green card, but I didn't get paid very much, so it was a challenge. 
Um, but I also missed, I missed school. I missed the intellectual conceptualization of stuff. I mean, I, it was a great job, I thought, you know, I did a lot. I learned, you know, I was program director, I was camera, I was producer, I was doing everything. I was editor, I was, you know, back end, I was putting the tapes to be broadcast in, the, I was head end. Um, but I really missed the sort of intellectual um, aspect of it. And in, being in New York, I started adjuncting at a, a Hunter College, part, which is part of CUNY. I was in my you know early twenties, and, and I would go to film conferences to present papers, just you know unaffiliated with any college because I just wanted to. And then I decided I was going to go back for my PhD. So I think, um, and it was a struggle, you know, it was a struggle trying to work. After that, I worked in television and I made my own films. But as an artist and as a dancer, it was you know it was I, it's just time was a struggle and long term. I I always enjoyed teaching. Even when I was a child, I used to organize my kids in the neighborhood and teach them English. Um, and it never occurred to me, you know. And my graduate school advisor actually said, you know, you don't fight it. It's in your blood. You are going to teach. And I said, no, 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 it's not going to happen. Of course, she was right. My mother was a professor, so maybe that's why I resisted it for so long. Um, but yeah, I think I do enjoy teaching. So. We'll be right back with our guests right after this song. That was the film score Zero Crossing by Lauren Beechter. We are still speaking with our guest, Nadini Sakan. Nadini, we just have just a couple of more questions. What are your goals for yourself and for your student? Wow. Um, wow. I think for my students, um, I think when I feel like I've done my job is when I've, the two things. When I have students in my intro class, intro to film, who are just taking one film class, and suddenly the light bulb goes off in their eyes and you can see it and then they fall in love with film. That moment of seduction, that's really beautiful for me to see that. And then they decide to change their major and then become a film, film, film major. Or even if they don't, they're really moved by it, you know, whatever they see and the power of it, right? Um, I think, but ultimately, you know, for my film and media students, I think you know, the idea to be to be ethical, you know, to think about the people that you're putting in front of your camera beyond your film, you know, mm -hmm. beyond the sort of the ethics of representation, to think about what you're going, what, what is this person, what, what is your footage, because it's powerful, right, it changes the relationship, and what is that going to happen to that person? 
you know, and to be thoughtful about that, is this with somebody in your family, you know, and to really think about those sorts of things. And I'm really interested in this idea of collaboration between the subject and the person behind. And, and I think there's this line that's sort of supposedly invisible, but it's really not. It's a line of power, and I think to really be thoughtful about that. Um, and also to be good filmmakers, and by that I don't mean just be ethical, but I also mean to be thoughtful about their craft, you know, and to think that, you know, to do your re research, to learn of people who've done what you think you're inventing for the first time, the people who've done before you, 40, 50, 70 years ago, in whatever form, film or literature or art, you know, and to be humble, you know, humble about that. Do you think there is an equal balance of men and women in faculty positions at universities? If you look at the, some of the statistics, they start out, um, you know, being pretty equal, and in some cases you have more women. I think what you also have to look at that through their careers, so from an assistant to an associate, and who becomes full professor. If you start to look at that, you know, how many endowed chairs are there? Who gets an endowed chair, for example? Mostly tend to be men, right? Mostly full professors are sort of men. So I think it, you have to look at it across the, you know, I do think it's shifting and it's changing and it's better, but I think, you know, things like motherhood changes things, you know. I have um, colleagues who decided not to have a child till they got tenure because it was safer because motherhood was seen as a distraction, you know? Mm. I think people still think that, and they don't say it out loud because it's not, you know, politically correct, but I have colleagues and who've really had to struggle with that. And even as a mother, you know, it's, you know, I have two little kids and I'm on the tenure track and it's, you know, it's not easy. But I think, um, I think you have to be sort of, we have, to, we have to do better at talking about these things as well, and it's not just something that you take for granted. So I do think it's a challenge, absolutely. I mean, I think with any field, you know. I mean, whether you like, however supportive your partner may be, you know, assuming one is, um, or if you have a partner, either way, who's going to help with your, you know, child rearing, um, straight or not, I think that's always the challenge, right, is that somebody has to, somebody, if you're not adopting, you're is pregnant and nursing the child, and that just, it's the reality of, you know, somebody has to be with them in real time. So I think that is in any profession. And I think with academia, you know, it's it's easier to be able to do it, to be honest, versus say maybe being, you know, an engineer, you know, working in certain sort of jobs that are physically demanding in that way. But you see it constantly. So I think, yeah, that's, that's an issue. Do you feel there is a disparity of women in key positions behind the scenes of film and television industry? Here's what I will say. I think, you know, it depends. I think media is sort of a really large term, and I think in which area of media we have to really break that down, right? So I think if you're talking about sort of media in like, you know, mid-level mid -level jobs, sure. Documentary film, there are tons of women, you know, and they're doing some really interesting work. Um, and I think it's easier almost because of the fluidity of that. You know, I think when you start to have bigger budgets and start to have more money, people don't want to put... Um, not just women, but people of color as well, right, in charge of large money because they feel they won't be able to sustain it or carry it or whatever, whatever verb you want to fill, fill in with that. So I think that's a challenge, and I don't think um, Elvis Mitchell today was talking about that during the keynote and was saying, you know, talking the st telling the story about Spike Lee when he got his Academy Award Student Filmmaker um, Award, he was waited for a year for the phone to ring. It didn't happen. And it's not enough, right? So that's just to, to be aware of that, right? And it's not to sort of be discouraging, but to be thoughtful, to know, you know, what that looks like, and to really think about not just, and it's not just a problem for people of color or for women. I think very often it's the onus becomes on them 
to fix the problem or to change it. And they have to sort of, if they work hard enough, I think it's for everybody, it's for all of us, you know, it's our struggle. And it's, 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 it just makes for a better, stronger, more diverse, more robust media with more stories, more voices. It's just whether it's women or people with disabilities or, you know, people of color, communities of color, people, you know, across class. Um, I think that's what makes us, makes more, um, just for a stronger society, you know. Why do you believe that there is a disparity of women in key positions at major production companies and studios? I do. I do think there's a problem. I think, largely speaking, you know, um, people trust people like them with large sums of money. And I think when you have a particular establishment, right, um, you it's easier to sort of to, to give that position to somebody who looks like you, right, or who, who you can relate to as part of the club, whatever that club is. And I think we should all do better, you know. And I think it's easy to say, oh, there's just nobody qualified. I don't think that's true. I don't think that. I think it's about our discomfort and facing that, you know, and saying, no, actually, you take, you know. And it's not about taking a risk. There are tons of amazingly qualified, in every profession, I think, qualified people, I think, men and women out there. I think it's about this, right? We don't. So yes, there is a huge disparity. And I think, you know, um, we're also in this sort of odd moment, you know, we have an African-American president, you know, so we supposedly live in this post-racial world, but, you know, we don't, we aren't. And that's the way, meanwhile, they are sort of, you know, young men of color under threat by institution forces like our police force. So that it is, it is a reality, right? And it's, we can't keep pointing to that and say how far we've come. I think it's a challenge. So it, it isn't going to change. Until those stories get told, right, who gets, who gets to even tell those stories, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not just about being behind the camera, but who gets funded. Who, and it's not just about, also about, it's about building not just one, um, one filmmaker, right, but it's about, and we do the same for people after us, like encouraging, you know, um, and giving them the tools, you know, and, and investing in that, really investing emotionally and financially. Have you experienced obstacles breaking into the business because of your gender? If so, why? Hmm. Well, probably yes and probably no, right? In the sense that I think I tend to be an optimist. I tend to um, look always look on the bright side. It's not to say that I don't have my, haven't had my very, very fair share and continue to have my fair share of rejection letters, you know, which I keep saying on a wallpaper, but I keep throwing them out. Um, so... I mean, the, the hundreds, you know, tons. And, and some of us, I don't even know, you know. I think, um, but I have to say, I've also been, it's, it's what you internalize and, you know, but you move on. It's like, if you really, here's what I do know, and I think I've come to this in a way, and this has been really helpful. I don't, I, there's nothing else I want to do. It's not making films or not making art is not an option for me. So I just have to do it, I don't, and I don't care. It's not if it, I could sell insurance and be happy, I should, I would have done it because it's so much easier, whatever the equivalent is. But I love what I do and I'm not going, I can't change that. So it isn't, it's not a choice almost. It's something that I'm, so you take it and you learn from it. And every time something horrible happens or something difficult happens or there's some prejudicial incident, um, you learn from it and you think, okay, I'm going to turn this into a film, I'm going to write about it, or oh, it's fodder, right? It makes us grow, and it's fodder for something that may happen, you know, that you might turn into something 10 years down the road. So it's not, nothing's wasted. I believe nothing is wasted. Do you believe that women filmmakers in the West face the same challenges as women filmmakers 
on the opposite side of the globe. Well, it depends what you mean by the opposite. But um, no, I think they're very different. And I think it depends where, right? I mean, I think even filmmakers in the West, for example, you know, there's a huge disparity. But I think, you know, even obviously, in the even within the United States. So this idea that sort of Western feminism is a single thing, right, that they just have to deal with, you know, I don't know, sexism in the workplace, or, you know, I don't think that's true. Um, I think depending which part of the world you're, absolutely it's difficult. And I think there's a flip side as well, you know, an advantage to say working in, um, you know, in a place where we think, oh, it must be horrible to be a woman filmmaker. You know, I think there are advantages as well. You can do things and you have access in ways. So I think it really depends. I think the challenges are different. I, I, yes, I would definitely agree. I don't think they're the same. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's the same even filmmaker to filmmaker, you know. I think it depends on your own. Um, just a quick story, I went, when I was in India several years ago shooting a film about sex workers um, in India, and it's from a city that my mother grew up in, and I went with my partner who was making the film with me, and she's, you know, um, white American, and we shot the film together, and you would think that I, being from India, would be, they would talk to me or be more comfortable with me. It was actually the reverse, because people no, like me, exactly, right? So people like me are the sort of cause of their repression, right? Because people like middle class, and they look down on mm -hmm. people like, and it was very different. And it was only when I went, you know, for a couple of visits later, um, with, I took my child with me, things changed. Because then they sort of saw me as somebody that was willing to bring her child to this red light district. So I think it's we have these perceptions of what we think, you know, is 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 a challenge when sometimes it's not, or an advantage and it's not. And I think those are um, helpful to think about because we don't. It's not the same for for each of us. Before we close the show today, I wanted to leave you with some of my thoughts on some of the hot topics in entertainment news here in the U.S. and internationally. As we get closer to the end of the radio show, I want to discuss this year's Academy Awards. As you all know, the debate and discussion was centered on the fact that people of color were significantly underrepresented. While people of color didn't get nominations this year, this wasn't the case for women and female-centric movies. This year, the recognition of women at the Oscars created a great sense of hope. I want to emphasize a sense of hope that the perception of women in Hollywood may be changing. We had three films up for Best Picture that were produced by women. One was an all-female producing team. That was the movie Brooklyn. Then we have the film Mustang. A film by Denise Guzmans or Gavon. And this was the only female narrative feature directed by a woman that was received a nomination, and that was in foreign films. Then we have Matt Max, Fury Road, grabbed the most Oscars by the most amount of female filmmakers for any movie that was represented at the Oscars. Amy, a documentary about Amy Winehouse, brought to light the singer's highlights in her career. And then A Girl in the River by Shameen Abab Shanoa won short documentary story, which centered around honor killings in Pakistan. 2016 should be seen as a winning year for female filmmakers. 
Believe you me, we still have a long way to go, but maybe there's some light at the end of the tunnel. And this year's academies not only brought hope, but interest to women-centered stories, along with women filmmakers. In regards to international news, Cannes International Film Festival will take place May 11th through the 22nd. They just released their annual Emerging Directors to Watch list. Out of the 16 directors on the list, Cannes has placed four women on this prestigious list. These individuals will participate in events that will help them seek financing for their next project. The women are Mulan Surye from Indonesia, Kiko Mayaki from Japan, Pooja Garang from Nepal, and Gaya Jiji from Syria. This is a one to four ratio in regards to gender. Plus, all the women on this list is of diversity. No European or Western women are represented on the list this year. Khan has always been known for highlighting diversity among male directors around the world. Now they are including women. Bravo, Khans. Last but not least, our game changer of the week, Elizabeth Banks. Elizabeth Banks comes from Irish heritage and is a well-known actress from the movie Seabiscuit the Lego movies, and the Hunger Game franchises. She is also the producer of the female-centric film franchise, Perfect Pitch. Banks became a triple threat after directing the film Perfect Pitch 2. This was Elizabeth Banks' directorial debut. It was a very profitable film for Universal Pictures. Perfect Pitch 2 opening weekend gross totaled $69 million. This set a new record for a first-time director. This film has grossed over $287 million and became the number one highest-grossing music comedy film. Our Game Changer of the Week, Elizabeth Banks. You've been listening to Prime Focus, and once again, thank you for joining us today. And always remember to not be afraid to unleash your power to create. Thank you for listening to Prime Focus. Prime Focus is a radio program sponsored by the IHW Foundation. Music from today's episode is sponsored by the Alliance of Women Film Composers. To learn more about Prime Focus, the IHW Foundation, the Alliance of Women Film Composers, visit our website at www.inherwords.org. I'm going to leave you with this song from Lauren Batcher. <laughs>